last year at Easter, I was grieved. And since you love me, right, you love me. You know, parents, you need to tell their ch- your children that they love you. They don't know that. And so I'm telling you, you love me. Since you love me, you want to know what grieves me. And it grieves me when the people of God gather on Easter and you have not invited people. It just grieves me. Because what do you believe if on Easter you have no desire for people to be next to you and to hear about the death and resurrection of Jesus? It's incomprehensible. And if you think that uh, you would have been there with Jesus and that you would have been there with Paul in the Areopagus, I say, liar, liar, pants on fire, noses as long as a telephone wire. <laughs> if you can't find it in yourself to invite the people that you know to come and hear about sin and righteousness and judgment, and you go, well, that's why I don't bring them. You're supposed to give them an uplifting message. And I say, then why did Jesus say it's good that he goes? Do you remember? He said, it's good that I go away because my father will send you a what? A comforter. And he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And it's like, well, that's not how I became a Christian. I became a Christian because somebody told me that God loves me and has a wonderful wife for my life. Or man for my plan. And I say, well, (laughs) yes, he does give us good promises. I'm not denying that. Every day I get up, I pinch myself to see if it can be possible that my wife actually married me. You know, it just seems like the most unbelievable miracle in my life. And those of you that know me know this is true. Now, you're deserving of Alyssa, I mean. (laughs) And listen, I know, maybe you're not as perverse as I am, but if I were sitting there listening to me, I'd think, well, the preacher wants a lot of people to hear him preach. And, And, you know, the truth is I preach to a lot more than this and a lot less. And it's, trust me, it's not about that. I do get caught up in numbers. How could you be American and not? You know, it's the bitch goddess that every American worships is numbers, you know. And I'm quoting Vernon Grounds there, just so that you know. (laughs) Um, But we live in an evil day. And if you're a righteous lot and it just, you see the wickedness, you would want to bring people to a place where they have the privilege of having the comforter work through the word to convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment. And let's, let's jump right in, because I want to show you that it's in our text too. But um, make sure you're not here alone next week, you young people. I used to, I had a friend when I was in high school, all right? Not young people, you young men. All right, there we go. 
Now you have the dignity you should have. Um, I had a friend in high school, and as I saw it, his life was a pitiful existence. He had a mother that was the most overwhelming and oppressive feminine presence in his life. I mean, there was no place to run and no place to hide from that woman. And he was trying to learn to become a man, and there was no man in his life. And then he had the horror, which I shared with him, of just having a face covered with pimples. And so what did I do? I invited him to church. And do you know that he did come to the Lord? Several of my friends did in high school. So I want you to, well, you don't go to high school. Yeah, that's right. Everybody's homeschooled today. All right. Well, do you play with anybody? (laughs) The problems of today are too much for me. It's time for me to die. All right. Forget it. Don't invite anyone. (laughs) See if I care. (laughs) Not going to have this dog to kick around anymore. All right, here we are, Matthew 21. It's the same text as we read in Luke, but it's the Matthew version. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, and by the way, some of you know David Abusar. David Abusar, for those of you that don't know him, is one of the pastors that graduated from the pastor's college, and he's planning a church up in Indianapolis. And David Abusar, if he had been around when Jesus sent them for a donkey, Jesus wouldn't have bothered. He would have just ridden David Abusar. <laughs> I mean, he's massive. And if you were an Israeli security TSA dude at an airport and you were profiling, which were too idiotic to do, you would definitely pull David Abusar out and go over him carefully. Because what? Well, because his father and father's father and father's father live on the Mount of Olives. That's David's family is the Mount of Olives. They're shoemakers, shoe repairmen on the Mount of Olives. So next time you see David, think of David going berserk when Jesus comes. Maybe it was his donkey, all right? When they approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were typing on their laptops, texting, on their smartphones. People, we have a pathetic existence. 
Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! See? The baby understands. The baby understands. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. That's how much of a commotion they were making. The whole city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The crowds were saying, this is the uplifting worship leader who will speak with Antivision about the Blessed Jesus rally. And the crowds were saying, what? This is the prophet. This is the prophet. Jesus. from the bayous of Louisiana. In other words, from the most despised part of the land, Galilee of the Gentiles. It was disgusting. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, <laughs> you know, once you've been called a prophet, I guess you have to live up to it, right? So Jesus went and spoiled it all. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers ever so gently without losing his equanimity. He was nice. Now, you know that's not in the text, right? You're keeping your eye on the text, all right? And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling does. And he said to them, I know you meant well. And we do need to have some method with all the people coming from different countries to exchange and to be able to buy the products that you need to be able to make the sacrifices. And, and which version do you use? And are you going to look at here? And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you are making it too convenient. No, you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests, and I love this word, you see the word, it's coming. Boop, boop, here it comes, all right. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonder. <laughs> you got to laugh with scripture, right? When they saw the wonderful, when they saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. Oh, they had their glorious, glorious self-concept and dignity. 
you know. I mean, it was so indignified. I mean, they were indignant about how indignified it was. It was just so disgusting, the wonderful things. Now, listen, you should be laughing. Don't, don't worry. This is the tension the text sets up. God, when he inspired the word wonderful, and then said that they were indignant, he wants you to feel like does not compute. You know, like you're trying to put USB 3 into Firestorm or Firefall or whatever it is. They became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Now, that is a question that's supposed to have an answer that everybody knows. And the answer isn't yes. What they're really saying to him is, how can you tolerate such worship to a man? How can you tolerate such, a, such an undercutting of our eminence? In our presence, in the very temple, by children, how can you tolerate this? They're not saying, do you hear? Right? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of the unborn, out of the mouth of the little tiny baby, after the ovum is fertilized and before it implants on the wall of the uterus. Come on, people. Come on. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he, and this is my favorite part, and he left them. <laughs> he left them. And boy, that's something you'd never in a million years get an evangelical to do. You know, if, you, if you've made up stories about evangelical preachers, as long as Voyager 1 has been spinning, you know, at 11 miles a second to the edge of the solar system, you would never come up with Jesus saying, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. And it says what? And he what? He left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Palm Sunday is the day that we celebrate this triumphal entry, and there are a bunch of things that you just say about it every year, right? Every year you comment on the fact that all the greens would have been irate over the pulling off of the boughs from the trees. What, what, what senseless waste of the glorious tapestry of living organisms, right? They're ripping branches off trees. <laughs> Come on, you know what the greens would say. And now I'm not talking about the greens, I'm talking about the environmentalists, you know? And yet, who was it who was there? You don't often see such a perfect juxtaposition that Romans 1 presents. Of they worship the creation rather than the creator. And so the greens there, they would have had a fit over the pulling the branches off living trees. They would have lectured you on how you should go out and find branches that have died at the bottom of pine trees, and then if you want to pull them off, fine. You know? Or they would have sold you fake branches made of oil. 
something, you know. Maybe trees pulled up that sank a hundred years ago when they were cleaning out Ottawa's forests, you know. Environmentally conscious. And so what happened that day is that people lost their mind in the way people at that time lost their mind. And they lost their mind by stripping branches off living trees and throwing them in the road in front of Jesus. Who was Jesus? Jesus was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And of all the time that Jesus lived on this earth, 33 years, it's the only time they got it right. And I'm convinced that the people who were there pulling the branches off and stripping off their shirts and their jackets, throwing them on the, on, the, on the road in front of the donkey. I'm convinced, and you know, if that donkey was walking, if you've ever taken a ride behind a horse, okay, I'm convinced that they didn't quite know what they were doing. I'm convinced that they were all prophets that day. Right? They didn't know that he was the king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus always has to remind us that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. We're always trading off the authority of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say that that's probably the principal work of most conservative Christians today, is doing our damnedest, and I'm not using that as an expletive, I, li- I mean it literally, doing our damnedest to get rid of the authority of Jesus Christ. Um, And you say, how? And I say, well, by trying to act as if we're just one perspective among many. By writing science fiction that has the laws of physics, you know, absolutely the same wherever you go across time and space, and the laws of religion, changeling. You know, the way that you talk about, well, my beliefs is a lie, and you're, you're trading off you realize that. You're trading off the authority of Jesus Christ. Because when you say, my values and my faith, and I believe, what you're, what you're doing is you're personalizing it. You're trading away the authority. It's not what the Apostle Paul said in the most sophisticated city there's ever been, who invented diversity that we have not yet risen to, namely Athens. He said, in him we live and move and have our being. He made us. He determined the boundaries of our nations. Paul wasn't trading off the authority of Jesus Christ, right? Now, I understand why we do it, and it's because it sounds so foolish to a decadent world that has climbed back down into the pantheon of gods of the ancient world. Okay? It sounds so wacko for them to hear us just say clearly, He is the only God. All the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. It sounds so foolish. So of course we want to trade off the authority and make it a personal faith statement. Right? 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 I know because I'm a sinner just like you. Right? And I'm here in front of most people who honor the word of God, and so I can say this, I can even get paid to say this, but the real test is outside the privacy of the church house and of our homes, right? (laughs) So here comes King Jesus, and we know, looking back, that he said, 
all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Okay? So don't trade on the authority of this king. When they were all going bananas over him, they got it right. It was the only time, and we still don't get it right here today because I watched some of you as you were worshiping as little children were trying to spur you on, and you were like pathetic. And it's not because children don't understand the dignity of your august personage. It's because your august personage has gotten in the way of the glory of Jesus Christ. And that august personage needs to die. You know that? We're doing better, but we're, so path- we're still pathetic. You don't need to worry about being fake in searching after heartfelt zeal in the worship of God. Your problem is not the problem of other people groups who will remain unnamed. Your problem is that you are so in love with your dignity that you will not give worship to Jesus. That's your problem. And you say, well, I worship him all the time. It's just in my brain. And I say, that's right, it's just in your brain. You show me any place in Scripture where God commends the worship of his people and there are always things in the text that point to the loss of dignity of the people worshiping. And you're so very dignified. Ask your wife, ask your husband, ask your children whether you were dignified or undignified in worship this morning. I guarantee you that they'll give you an honest answer. And then see if your children don't appallingly resemble you. Rarely do children rise above the level of their dignified father. After all, what's the sense of having a father if that doesn't limit your spirituality? Isn't that what fathers are supposed to do? <laughs> you... In worship this morning, I was, I was thinking about what it would be like if we actually did on Palm Sunday. But then I thought, it'll never work to do it one Sunday. We have to, we have to exercise all the time. You can't show up at the Super Bowl. <laughs> you can't show up at the Final Four. You have to have been in that gym with a ball boy for thousands of hours, right? So you can't expect to be able to worship on Palm Sunday with anything approximating the joy of the people on the road to Jerusalem that day if the rest of the year you've been protecting your dignity. Do you understand? One of the things that just goes through my mind all the time as I examine my own worship is this. Since I am coming to that holy room, where with thy choir of saints forevermore, I shall be made thy music, 
as I come, I tune the instrument here at the door. And what I must do then, think here before. Now, that's the way the poem goes, think. And I crossed it out and I wrote do. I don't want to think here before. I want to do here before. And so I, I want to begin by saying there should be some resemblance, some similar loss of dignity, some similar zeal, some similar joy, something evident, something visible, something with a little pathos, some vivification, some uh, life, some And I always think what William Law says in the serious call to a vow and holy life three or four centuries ago. He says, you know, all these men tell me they can't sing. He says, but I get them drunk in a bar and they beller like whales. And so I always think, okay, so where is there in life the thing that we see on Palm Sunday? It's like basketball. Basketball? When the shot beats Kentucky? Oh, yeah, we're going to storm the court. I mean, people, I love basketball, and that's pathetic. That it would take that for a reformed man to strip off his clothes. And he wouldn't do it for worship. And he'd be married to a woman that if he did do it for worship, wouldn't have any children because she despised him for it. Listen, there should be regularly eruptions from you as a congregation in the worship of God. And I think it's an indication that it's not real in us, that there are never eruptions from us. Because, I, I, I kid you not, there's an old saying, no man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. A man finds his pleasures irrepressible. And I see a whole lot of repression going on when we claim we're worshiping the king of kings to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And so what I would say to you is, I would say, you're fine. What I would say to you is, listen, you women... Give yourself to what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. Don't let your fuddy-duddy husband repress you. And you men, don't let your Michael wife suppress you. I'm sorry, Michael, but that's just... (laughs) All right, once and for all, I love your name. I named you. All right, we're done with that. That's my daughter, and her name's Michael, this one that we're trashing today. M-I-C-H-A-L. All right. Be glad I didn't name you Jail. (laughs) I was entirely capable of it. (coughs) Excuse me. And you children, you young men and you young women, don't let the adults repress you. And those of you who are black, for heaven's sakes, be black. 
Somebody help the boy. The boy needs help. That's me, the boy. <laughs> yeah, that's about what I would expect from a mathematician. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Let's get, let's get past this. But remember this poem. Since I'm coming to that holy room where with thy choir of saints forevermore I shall be made thy music. As I come, I tune the instrument here at the door and what I must do then, do here before. Okay? Now let's move on. It's unbelievable how they pull out all the stops. You ever know anything about an organ? They have all these little things. It adds more and more and more and more and more pipes. And they pull out all the stops for the worship. And what this causes is that the whole city is stirred. So the whole city hears what's going on. And it causes them to ask the question, what's going on? You know, John Wesley said, we don't need to worry about getting people to come. If there's a fire, people always come to watch the fire. And that's the problem. There's no fire in the church today. Okay? There was a fire there that day, and so all the people were stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus. Now, I want you to focus on that. This is the prophet Jesus. No evangelical today, no reform man today would think to say that what caused all Jerusalem to be stirred and what caused people to pull out all the stops and go berserk was because of the coming of a prophet. That's who we don't want to come. We don't want a prophet. What we want is a savior. What we want is a nice God who's presentable, who can have coffee and tea and crumpets. What we want is an inoffensive, positively oriented affirmer of all the values that we hold. What we want is somebody who will tell us that all of the stupidities that we blather on about are transcendent. What we want is Rob Bell. In other words, what we want is a wolf, because a wolf will allow us to go to sleep quietly with a steady increasing dose of morphine, maybe withdrawal of food and water, and we go silently into the darkness. But what a prophet does is a prophet wakes us up. <laughs> no, I mean... A prophet wakes us up. Now, why do you think that people would be zealous in giving praise and stripping off their clothes and the branches in front of a prophet? I would think that whoever welcomes a prophet in that way is happy for that prophet to come. I don't think that you pull the branches off and throw the jackets in... I don't think you have a celebration like that if it's something you're cringing in anticipation of, right? No, it's something that you're just so gaga over that you just give yourself to it. Like, are you beating Duke? 
And what is said to the city when they see the stir is the prophet. The prophet from the despised deep south. Galilee of the Gentiles is here, okay? Now, why would people be excited and in ecstasy over the coming of a prophet? Well, the reason is that all those people have had their hearts awakened, their consciences awakened by the Holy Spirit. Remember I said, when he comes, he will convict the sin, the the world, of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what Jesus said. He said, it's good that I'm leaving because he will send the comforter to you and the comforter will convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. And you know, this morning there were two men in this church who in the past year have seen their families go up in smoke and their marriages and their relations with their children. But you know, both those men have had their hearts awakened. So if you believe that Christianity is a way of giving you the good things of life without the bad, then you'll be a good evangelical. But if you're a Christian, you will know that there is no greater gift from God than the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin and righteousness and judgment. Because when you're convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment, you can forget your great dignity and repent. And when you've repented, that prophet is the most precious thing in the world to you. And so here were all these people who had heard all these horrid, horrid statements by Jesus that are very opposite of uplifting. You have heard that it's said that a man should not commit adultery, but I say to you that any man that looks with lust in his eye at a woman has committed adultery in his heart. Now, I would not leave that service thinking that I had been uplifted unless I was willing to have the Holy Spirit lay me low that I could begin to live. And you see, the problem today is that none of us believe in the ministry of the prophet, Jesus Christ. We believe in the ministry of the priest, and all of us but R2K believe in the ministry of Christ as king, But none of us believe in his ministry of being a prophet. But how can you read the Gospels and not see Jesus puncturing everybody he speaks to, principally puncturing them? I mean, he just, pew, pew. Everybody's deflated. Even Peter at the very end. No, 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 I tell you that even if everybody else abandoned you. I'll never do it. Well, Peter, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. People, we need to fall in love with what lays us low instead of what raises us up. We don't need to be raised up. If you've ever been out of the country and come back in, you know you don't have all the raising you ever need. You're an American citizen. (laughs) I mean, think. What do you have in that smartphone? It's mind-boggling. 
How warm are you today? Oh, there's, there's a storm coming. We might have to have a fire in the fireplace and buy another gallon of milk. I mean, do any of us have a life? We don't. And so today, we don't want to profit because we're complacent and fat and well-fed and rich, and we have Ligonier conferences. So even our brains are stuffed full of good things, right? Now listen. Everybody knew that Jesus was a prophet. And again, if I tell you that your worship should not should have some resemblance to the worship of the people that day, right? You're with me on that one. The preaching today should have some resemblance to the preaching of every generation of preachers until today. Come on. And you say, oh, there you go again, saying this is the only church that's good. I say, for heaven's sakes, give me a thousand like it. I mean, once you fear God, it doesn't take anything for you to be a prophet. All you have to do is open the Bible anywhere and tell the people what it says. And not work hard not to tell them what it says. I mean, for instance, Palm Sunday. Do you see? It's preaching itself, right? I haven't been creative here, right? This is the prophet. Oh, I think I'll talk about being a prophet. I think I'll talk about them being happy to have a prophet. Well, okay, so what happens now is that he proves that they have the label right. Okay, because what does he do? He goes into the temple. <laughs> He's just had them get it right, and they're all celebrating him, coming, filled with zeal, even the children, you know? Why would anybody scare the children? You know, the children are so excited, and Jesus goes in, and look at what it says that he does. This is what he does. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out. Drove out. Not ushered out. Okay. Not suggested out. Drove. That's what you do to cows and pigs. He drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the temple. Oh, man, he's always trying to make the big statement, isn't he? He couldn't feed 20. He had to feed 3,000. Well, we don't complain when he makes a big statement there, do we? Look at how big that statement is. Well, look at this one. He drove them out and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, I want to make the parallel, all right? I'm going to make the parallel. Fasten your safety belts. What they were doing in the temple was a necessary part of the worship that God had commanded. Okay? They needed to exchange currency, you know, triplex or whatever it is, travelix or whatever it is in the airport. You have to get your currency exchanged. People come from all over the world for Passover. They have to be able, in order to do the sacrifices, to be able to have the right currency. And they need to be able to buy the products that are going to enable them to worship the way they should. So this is not them selling 
uh, Ouija boards in the temple, <laughs> right? This is not crack. It's not crystal meth. It's money changing, and it is the instruments of the true worship of the true God. In other words, this is Ligonier, and this is J.I. Packer's knowing God being sold in the temple. Okay? In other words, take the thing that you think is most helpful to you to worship God in truth today. Now, I'd put J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, right at the top. All right? That is what they were doing, but in the temple. And that is what Jesus describes this way. He says, he said to them, verse 13, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Listen, every year I make this point, so I'll make it again so I'm predictable. When I was a young man, probably 12 years old, my father and my wife's father, and she wasn't my wife at the time, I was 12, but they started an organization with some other men called Christian Booksellers Association. And every year they'd have a a convention, but back then it was tiny, and so we went to this hotel in San Diego that had a glass elevator. Not alligator, elevator. I don't remember the name of it, but you remember the, right, the hotel? We didn't know each other at the time, but our dads did. And it was the most incredible thing in the world. I didn't know there was that much money and money changing. And you went there and they would clean your room every day. I had never seen such a thing. You know, generally my room was only as clean as I kept it. And then you'd go to a restaurant, and I always did the dishes every night in our home. I cleaned up the kitchen. That was my job. And you went to a restaurant, you didn't have to clean up the kitchen afterwards. And a glass elevator. So much wealth. It was overwhelming. I mean, I had never lived the high life that I lived when I went to the Money Changers Convention. Are you with me? Or do you think that it's a bad analogy? Do you think I'm unfair? Well, now it's grown, that association, now they've taken book out of it. Now it's Christian marketers or Christian products, and now the majority of it has nothing to do with books. Now it's belt buckles and holographs of Jesus on credit cards and kitsch and and music. All right? And... So I've watched it grow for a lifetime. And it stinks to high heaven. It was in Indianapolis a few years ago, and I went and looked at it. Actually, no, it was just the regional one. (laughs) It wasn't even the national one. Now, of course, they fill McCormick Place. You know McCormick Place. It's huge. They fill it. And this convention has exhibits of one publisher, this is how much money there is in Christian publishing now, where the whole exhibit reminds you of the most extraordinary house you've ever stepped foot in. It's stories tall, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of square feet, but instead of this just being two by fours, every one of these things is is crafted so that it's light and can be moved easily. And every place has graphics. And if you enter it, it has nice carpet, and you go in, and it's, it's like stories high and pictures, and 
And it's just unbelievable. If you go in those places, you can actually meet R.C. Sproul. Senior, not junior. We're only getting junior. Okay? But you can actually go in and meet R.C. Senior. And you can actually, you can't meet him, but you can see Tim Keller. And so my father-in-law and my dad helped start this whole obscenity. And I don't see how any person can go into the Christian Booksellers Convention and not know what Jesus would do with it. Nope. (laughs) There is no ambiguity even in the box by the door. Thank you, Stephen. It's Monty Python line. Okay, there is no ambiguity, it's clear. And so what I did for a few years is every time I was around these people that owned the publishing houses, which I'm around them quite often, and every time I was around a famous author, and I used to be around them, now they don't, think, they don't remember who I am. Can't, can't figure it out for the life of me. You know what I did for several years is every time I was around them, I'd look them in the eye. I did this to my father when I say, you know, Dad, you know what CBA needs? That's what everybody refers to it as, CBA, all right? You know what it needs? What it needs is for you and me to get a couple guys together, get some sledgehammers and some chainsaws. And what we need to do is we need to go in next year's CBA, and we need to shred it. We need to destroy it, utterly destroy it. Don't hurt anybody, but make sure that we drive them out and that we reduce the place to bedlam. And as I say it, I look very carefully at their eyes. And not one person I've ever said that to me has gotten uncomfortable and turned away or even gotten angry, or even thought to argue with me. What I see every time I say it is their piercing eyes in my eyes saying to me, you're absolutely right. I kid you not. The very people who buy the booths and set them up and make the sales look at me and they say, they're right. Have you ever been in, in, in the bondage of a sin that you never knew the slavery that was coming when you took your first step? Do you realize that all of these people are slaves to the prophets and the employees and the glitz and the worship of personalities that they have created? And so after they have looked me in the eye and silently said, you're right, Tim, then I say one other thing to them. I say to them, if you want to join me, I want to warn you that we will do some, we'll do some jail time. But when we get out, every single publisher and author we see will look at us and will say, thank you. It was a nasty job, but somebody had to do it. And every single time they look at me and they give me this little smile and they still don't say anything. <laughs> And every time I say this in a service, I have men come up to me afterwards, as one did in the first service, and say to me, when you're ready, I'm ready.
Listen, God does not know, need our web stats and our seats here and our money. He doesn't need numbers. He doesn't need it. What he needs is one or two men, women, and children who are willing to despise their dignity and worship him. And so it's very interesting that day that those who were most willing to give up their dignity were the ones that had the smallest part of it because they had their diapers changed. And that's the sucklings, the little ones at their mother's breast. Didn't Jesus say, unless you change and become what? Like a child. And listen, you don't begin to understand the culture you live in until you know that the Pharisees hated children and particularly hated it when children spoke the praise of Jesus and that we hate children. We hate them. And you say, oh, no, we don't. We had them up front. And I say, yeah, how many? An average of 3.2 per couple. And how many children had to die so that you wouldn't have any more than 3.2? How many of your children have you killed? You say, well, I don't do that. I'm a Christian. You say, oh, come on. There are many people in here who have killed their children. And you said, well, well, no. You, no. And I say, of course. When have the people of God ever failed to sacrifice to the Canaanites Moloch? You know why I'm so absolutely opposed to abortion and speak about it so often? You know why? Like that, I could have done it. I think it's a miracle that I didn't abort one of our children. Do you know how normal, how banal the killing of unborn children is around the world today? It's so ridiculous when we talk about slavery. Who gives a rip about slavery? What a pathetic morality play. (laughs) Make us feel superior to our ancestors as if they're any threat to us. (laughs) They're dead, after all. But boy, find a prophet who will speak up for the unborn today. (laughs) So... Two weeks ago, the Financial Times released statistics. They said that the Chinese government had just announced the totals. And the totals, since 1971, when they began their one-child policy and their forced abortions, that so far it's around 350 million babies that their doctors have killed. The government announced this. It, It was a statistic they thought would be helpful. Then they said that they have inserted something like 400 million IUDs, which, the way they work, is to abort babies before they can attach themselves to the wall of the uterus. Human beings. And then they said, I forget how many sterilizations they'd done, 41% of 
Chinese use the IUD as their form of birth control. Now again, an IUD is an abortifacient. It may have other ways of working, but there's no question that it works by preventing the human being from being cared for by the womb. <laughs> Which I think I know why wombs were made by God. And so I did some quick calculations and I realized that in China alone, unquestionably, we have over 2 billion abortions since 1971. Now, Eric and Chris, you, you check out my calculations talking to Adam, but I can't see any way that those IUDs on an average haven't aborted three or four children over the course of a lifetime. I mean, it's just inconceivable. They could be aborting one every three months. And so here's how we process this. What we do is we say, well, and, well, and we say, well, and well, and well, long enough until we forget what we were saying well about. And the reason is, how do you cope with, and then you add in India, does anybody think India's stats are lower? And then you add in the United States, and we know that ours is probably somewhere around two to 300 million. And then we add in Western Europe, and we know that in Russia, the, the average woman had had four or five abortions, surgical. Okay, are you with me? And then you see this world as it is, which is the precise people that God, through Jesus Christ, said he has ordained praise through. Out of the mouths of infants and children and sucklings and toddlers, he has ordained praise. And you say, well, he's not talking about the unborn. I say, well, you tell your wife that when that child kicks. You tell her that. You tell her that he is incapable of praising God. You tell a woman who has had a miscarriage that that child can't praise its creator. And the entire world today is built on the slaughter of the very ones that God has ordained praise through. And you could not, trust me, you couldn't give a rip. Because it doesn't seem like a life to you. And I say, oh yeah, we're so glad we have your brain to tell us what seems right and what seems wrong. <laughs> I mean, you would have made up all of Scripture if you just had a few minutes alone in a room of your own. And so, listen, I'm old, I'm going to die soon, and you're going to be left with so much blood. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that when God returns, he will not come as a little baby. He will come as the king of kings and lord of lords. And the Bible says that every drop of blood will have an accounting. And so you're left with thinking about this world and thinking about these little ones that God says he has ordained praise through. And you have a choice. You can either love me talking about it, or you can hate it. <laughs> and it's not going to depend upon whether or not you've had an abortion. 
That's what you'd think. That's what Satan tells you. Well, the people that have had abortions will hate what Tim sang, and the people who haven't will, will feel self-righteous and love what Tim sang. And I say, no, it's the exact opposite. The ones who are self-righteous will hate what I'm saying because, after all, how could they bring anybody into a church where there would be a prophet? But the ones who have had abortions, their hearts have already been crying out for release. They didn't even know why their heart was crying out. And then the preacher told them that God hates the shedding of the blood of innocence. And all of a sudden, they're happy. They're happy. And the reason is because now they see the truth, and it's high and lifted up, and it's greater than them. <laughs> and don't you guys, don't you, I mean, you have, a, you have a smartphone in your pocket. Don't you just wish someday you could get up and there would be something greater than you? Something that was transcendent, even more than IU basketball. Something that wasn't corrupt, something that did not make you fatter and richer and slower and more lazy. And that's what the preaching of sin and righteousness and judgment does to us. We're finally, like those two men in the early service, we're finally able to see ourselves as our wife always knew we were. Who did we think we were fooling? <laughs> and seeing ourselves as God sees us. And having the wonderful privilege of unconditional surrender under the cross. You know? Seeing our parents and knowing that our parents killed our siblings, but that if we had been in their shoes, we would have done the same. An unconditional surrender. And then, all of us are the same height. Would you all stand up, please? Okay, now look around. Is everybody the same height? Curtis! Doug, and then, boy, Michael is big. You guys are monsters. You're just monsters. Somebody said to me before, the, before I, I was preaching, who was it? Somebody said to me, I guess they're not here right now, but they said to me, look at Jeff and Laura. Their children make them look like midgets. <laughs> Listen. Black and white, red and yellow, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, United States citizens, and citizens of Thailand. Those who have aborted 10 of their children and those who have never been married. Those who are 6'6 six, six, and those who are 412. Okay, under the cross, we're all the same. We're all the same. I'm not better than you. I'm the one that's paid to tell you how bad I am. Okay, that's the way to think of me. And if you think that makes us a cult, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So I guess we'll have to be a cult. 
So this week, pray that God will give us prophets on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday so that we can see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Right? Isn't that what this is all about? And so that we can love it because we see our wickedness. And we don't try to justify ourselves. We don't say, but. We just say, yeah, you got my number. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flee to Jesus. I'm going to flee to Jesus. Put that on my tomb. He fled to Jesus. Okay? That's all I want. That's it. Let's pray. Our Father, would you please remove the blinders from our eyes? Would you once again do the miracles that Jesus did of making the blind see and making the deaf hear and making the lame leap for joy? Father, would you give us joy in our worship? Please, Father, give us joy in our worship. Help us not to think of ourselves, but to think of the glory of Jesus Christ and to lose ourselves in joy. Tune our lips here at the door that what we are to do there, we do here before. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.